Hello, and welcome to the Trump Scorecard. I'm your host, Jesse Burney. And you know, I'm never short of news for this podcast. There is always plenty to cover. But some weeks are kind of overwhelming. Not just that there's a lot of news, but that they feel particularly significant from an historical perspective, as though the administration has turned a corner. Not in a good sense, of course. The path Donald Trump and his rotating cast of characters is on is an ever-descending spiral, so every corner they turn is a new depth to which they've sunk. This week felt like that. It was a constant thrum not only of stories about new policies, but the backbiting and amateur hour tactics reached new levels. We started, of course, with a brand new character. This guy. If we have a little bit of friction inside the White House as a result of that, it's okay. We can all live with that. I'm a business person. I'm, I'm used to dealing with friction. Yeah. Oh, but are you new White House Communications Director Anthony Scaramucci? Sadly, we no longer have Sean Spicer to kick around anymore. After six months of constant lying, of indignity and embarrassment, what finally did it for Spicer was that he didn't like his new boss. So he took his ball and went home, more or less. But it only took a few days for Spicer's decision to make complete and total sense, Scaramucci may be the worst communications director in the history of communications. On his first day, he said this about Chief of Staff Reince Priebus. Uh, Reince and I have been personal friends for six years. Uh, we are a little bit like brothers, where we rough each other up once in a while, which is totally normal for brothers. But by Thursday, he had created a full-blown communications crisis for the White House by publicly accusing Priebus of leaking information to reporters. He accused him on Twitter, then deleted the tweet and said he hadn't accused him, then went on CNN the next morning to accuse him again. So if Reince wants to explain that he's not a leaker, let him do that. He also went on a profanity-laced tirade on the record to The New Yorker's Ryan Lizza. He said Steve Bannon is trying to suck his own dick. In other words, he's basically Donald Trump, which is why it makes perfect sense that Trump has apparently signed off on Scaramucci's crusade against Priebus. I've worked in an extremely toxic environment before. Chances are most of us have. And every time it can be traced back to the same reason. Really bad management. It starts at the top when your boss is petty and stupid and cruel. Coworkers turn on each other. It creates an environment where accomplishing anything serious is virtually impossible. And in most workplaces, that's bad news. But given the agenda these guys are pursuing, I'm pretty damn glad they're incompetent. Of course, the Scaramucci-Priebus battle isn't the only throwdown in the White House. It's not even the main event. The most consequential battle continues to be Trump versus Sessions. Donald Trump took to Twitter to insult his own attorney general, calling him weak and beleaguered. Mike Pence put it really well. I think the president's been very candid, that he was disappointed uh, with the attorney general's decision uh, to recuse himself and to not know about his intention to do so before he was confirmed as the Attorney General of the United States. But I have to tell you, Tucker, you've been around Washington for a long time. I know 
the Washington way is to talk behind people's backs. Uh, but that's not President Donald Trump's approach. One of the great things about this president is you always know where you stand. I'm kidding. That's a horrible thing to say. Trump is basically trying to force Sessions to resign. Why? Because Sessions recusing himself from the Russia investigation means he can't fire Bob Mueller. I wrote a story about this this week, and there's a link to that story on the website, thetrumpscorecard.org. But it shows just how little Trump values what everyone claims is the most important thing to him, loyalty. Sessions was Trump's first major supporter. He always stood behind him, was a top advisor on a ton of issues, including immigration, the key issue of his campaign. But the moment Sessions did something inconvenient to Trump, the president treats him like gum on the bottom of his shoe. He doesn't want your loyalty. He doesn't want you acting in his best interest, because that means using your own judgment. He wants your fealty. He doesn't just want you to do what he says. He wants you to already know what he wants at all times, even if you have to predict the future to do it. He's pissed Sessions recused himself because it means Sessions can't protect him, which isn't Sessions' job. Believe me, I am not trying to get you to sympathize with Jeff Sessions. I have covered so many horrific things he's done in just the last six months on this podcast I believe I've used the word garbage to describe him on more than one occasion. He is a terrible person. But the irony is, Trump is trying to push him out for the only thing he ever did right, recusing himself from the Russia investigation. Some folks have taken to rooting for Sessions against Trump, not me. Sometimes the people fighting are so awful, you can't take sides. There are no good guys here. Heck, even this week we can find another example of Jeff Sessions being a terrible human being. Uh, His Justice Department filed an amicus brief in a federal case it's not party to, in which a skydiver said his employer fired him for being gay. The skydiver claimed his firing violates the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission backs him up. But Sessions DOJ is arguing that Title VII of the law, which outlaws discrimination on the basis of sex, doesn't apply to sexual orientation. And to be fair, this is a matter of long legal dispute. And there are, of course, court cases backing the DOJ's position, because for a long time, pretty much any argument in favor of discriminating against gay people was likely to be a winning one. But I have some possibly surprising news for you. It is the year of our Lord, 2017. We now know and recognize that the LGBT community is, in fact, made up of human beings, and we know that discriminating against them is wrong. So of course we should apply the Civil Rights Act to them, because we now understand that it is exactly the kind of discrimination it was meant to outlaw, even if those who wrote the law didn't understand it was discrimination at the time. Just as we apply the Fourth Amendment to surveillance technologies that didn't exist in 1789, we can apply an anti-discrimination law to discrimination that wasn't recognized in 1964. And given what we know now, in 2017, with gay people living out in the open, getting married in all 50 states, serving in the military, how can anyone with a soul argue that firing someone for being gay is okay? Oh right, I forgot we're talking about Jeff Sessions. Honestly, I hope his ass does get fired. And I hope it hurts his feelings.
As I was working on this podcast, Republicans in the Senate were trying to rob millions of Americans of healthcare coverage. And miracle of miracles, they failed. Three Republicans joined every Democrat in the Senate and rejected what was called the skinny repeal, a sort of last-ditch effort to move Trump care forward. I could go through all the machinations and versions and lies and horrible policy, but this is a podcast about Trump, not Congress. So I want to talk about something incredibly stupid and possibly illegal the administration did to push the bill through. Early in the week, there was a motion to proceed on the bill, which didn't actually exist at the time, and it should have died then, but 50 out of 52 Republicans have zero principles and voted to let the bill proceed. One of the two who voted no was Alaska's Lisa Murkowski. First, Trump took to Twitter to yell at her because he's Trump and he's not very smart and he's a whiny baby. No big deal. But then his interior secretary, Ryan Zinke, called both Murkowski and Alaska's other senator, Dan Sullivan, to threaten to alter federal policy in Alaska to hurt the state's economy if Murkowski withheld a yes vote on the final bill. And that is extremely unkosher, and it's also incredibly stupid, because the Trump administration has no idea what it's doing. But Lisa Murkowski does. See, she chairs the subcommittee that oversees the Interior Department. And that committee mysteriously announced that all department confirmation hearings were on hold. Indefinitely. Murkowski didn't give a reason why. She didn't have to. We knew why. And when it came down to the final vote, she was one of the three Republicans who voted no. Trump is willing to threaten the people of a state to get its senators' votes. With Murkowski, he failed. But a lot of other senators who claimed they couldn't vote for the bill ended up in the yes column. I wonder how many of them got calls from cabinet members. Trump campaigned on overturning the Iran deal. He, he's called it the worst deal ever, some such nonsense. But being president is more complicated than running for president, a, a lesson that still doesn't seem to have sunk very deeply into his leathery orange skin. And he found out that just canceling the Iran deal wouldn't be as simple as he thought. And in fact, his own advisors urged him to certify Iran's compliance with the deal, which... Thank goodness, because the deal is the best way to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon without getting us into another huge war in the Middle East. Although, to be fair, our wars in the Middle East always turn out to be super great. But Trump hasn't given up on killing the deal, and so he's working on a plan to undermine it. He's pushing for inspections at new sites Iran is likely to resist. And look, I'm not in the CIA. I have no idea whether we should be inspecting those sites or not. But what's really remarkable is how open Trump is about his whole plan. He's announced he wants to decertify Iran so he can cancel the deal. And it's clear he's pushing for these inspections simply so Iran can refuse them, and he can use that as an excuse to back out of the agreement. Quitting the deal puts us on a very, very clear path. It doesn't just move us backward. It takes diplomacy off the table. It makes war with Iran infinitely more likely. And there is no measure by which that is a good idea. We are talking about an expensive, bloody conflict that will make the region even more chaotic, creating even more terrorism, making all of us, making the whole world less safe.
I said at the top of the podcast how this week felt particularly significant, and I want to talk about why. One of the reasons it felt that way was Trump himself. He seemed to go particularly over the edge this week. Maybe it's no coincidence that the American Psychoanalytic Association sent a message to its members telling them they should feel free to comment publicly on Trump's mental health. Maybe it's Scaramucci's influence, but this was a week where Trump was truly Trump. He made a slew of statements that in any other presidency would each be scandals requiring weeks of round-the-clock coverage. But with Trump, we don't have the space to cover any one of these for too long before the next outrage pops up. So what I want to do instead is put a bunch of them together in one place so you can get a sense of just how far afield Trump has gone. Remember, this is all from this past week. And like I say every week, this is not normal. First, he spoke at the commissioning ceremony for the aircraft carrier USS Gerald Ford, where he said this. Now we need Congress to do its job and pass the budget that provides for higher, stable, and predictable funding levels for our military needs that our fighting men and women deserve and you will get. Believe me, President Trump, I will tell you, you will get it. Don't worry about it. But I don't mind getting a little hand, so call that congressman and call that senator and make sure you get it. Let's be really clear about what he did there. He told an audience of active duty sailors to call their members of Congress and urge them to vote for one of his political priorities. There is very little a president can do more disrespectful to the military than to use them for political purposes. It's outrageous of him to make that request, and it shows he has no idea what the hell he's doing. All he had to do was read a speech off a teleprompter. But no, instead he goes off text, disrespects the entire military by dragging these sailors into politics. Next, he headed to the Boy Scout Jamboree, an annual gathering of thousands of scouts from around the country. And at least this time, he recognized it wasn't the place for politics. Who the hell wants to speak about politics when I'm in front of the Boy Scouts? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Of course he went into politics. For example, he said this. And hopefully he's going to get the votes tomorrow to start our path toward killing this horrible thing known as Obamacare that's really hurting us. And this. By the way, just a question. Did President Obama ever come to a jamboree? And this. Our economy is doing great. Our stock market has picked up since the election, November 8th. Do we remember that date? Was that a beautiful day? I remember that night. It sucked. He also told a story, it's too long for me to play the whole thing, about William Levitt, the developer of the Levittown suburbs. You know, they were meant to give white people a place to live away from black people. He's a real hero to Trump. The story was about how Levitt made a ton of money, sold his company, bought a yacht to have sex parties on. This is a good story to tell to children. And then went back into business and went bankrupt. It was truly an inspiring story to tell the future leaders of America. Seriously, it was bizarre. This was the Boy Scouts. And again, he couldn't just read words off a teleprompter. Trump has to be Trump. Finally, he went to a campaign rally in Ohio. Remember, he's already running his 2020 campaign, right? 
And at his rally, he made an important self-evaluation. With the exception of the late, great Abraham Lincoln, I can be more presidential than any president that's ever held this office. That I can tell you. It's real easy. It's real easy. What do you think Donald Trump thinks it means to be presidential? I'm genuinely curious how he would answer that question. Maybe he thinks it's presidential to say things like this. And you've seen the stories about some of these animals. They don't want to use guns because it's too fast and it's not painful enough. So they'll take a young, beautiful girl, 16, 15, and others, and they slice them and dice them with a knife because they want them to go through excruciating pain before they die. And these are the animals that we've been protecting for so long. Well, they're not being protected any longer, folks. Honestly, what can you say to that? It's not just the literal demonization of immigrants. It's the creepy way he talks about their victim, these teenage girls being beautiful. It's just strange. Maybe being presidential means different things to different people, but it still amazes me every day that there are tens of millions of Americans who believe this is what a president should sound like. He's not just the least presidential president in our nation's history. He's one of the least presidential people who has ever lived. And he's our president. And we have to live with that every single day. One more really big story this week I have to cover. And once again, I want to start with Donald Trump's own words, this time on Twitter. After consultation with my generals and military experts, please be advised that the United States government will not accept or allow transgender individuals to serve in any capacity in the U.S. military. Our military must be focused on decisive and overwhelming victory and cannot be burdened with the tremendous medical costs and disruption that transgender and the military would entail. Thank you, Gus. That announcement made on Twitter of all places, come on. It sent real shockwaves across the country. It was such a huge step back after the military had announced just last year it would start integrating transgender troops to serve openly in the services. But the real question was, how would it affect those service members? I spoke to someone who knows. It's going to cause a lot of problems for people at a basic human level. And I think that's the part that's missing when these discussions happen in a more political sphere. You don't really hear about, like, I'm going to lose my job because of this. Um, I'm not going to have income. You know, a lot of these people have kids. What are my kids going to do? It just raises a lot of issues. And, um, you know, when I'm just hearing about it just now, uh, it's really making my head spin with all the really terrible possibilities that could come out of it. That's Emily Kroos. She works in cybersecurity and has worked as a civilian with the National Security Agency, the CIA, and the U.S. military. She also transitioned a little more than a year and a half ago when she was working with the Army. In fact, that's why she went to go work for the Army. I actually started working for the Army specifically because uh, I knew that I could safely transition there. 
um, I knew that working for a, a military organization would um, they would appreciate the work that I do more than who I am coming in on a day-to-day basis. So it was it was an easy fix for me to to kind of make in my head to work for one of these military organizations um, and and just do good work and you know the rest the rest would follow. That was my that was my thinking. Going through her transition working for the army may have helped Emily change other people's minds. I worked with some people, some really fantastic people who worked really hard and again, came from backgrounds. They'd never met a trans person in their life that they know of. So one person in particular who I know, I won't say his name, but um, from Oklahoma is like the most conservative uh, tea party, you know, type dude I've ever met in my life was still fantastic because he understood from a basic level that the job is the job. And you just have to, at the end of the day, you just have to get it done. It doesn't really matter who's standing next to you necessarily. As long as they know what they're doing and they'll get you killed, then you're going to be fine in the military. One thing she knows for certain is that allowing transgender people to serve in the military does not weaken our national security. And that's not just her opinion. That's, that's a big challenge, I think, just as a, as a, at a basic like unit cohesion level which is something they constantly bring up about uh, we shouldn't let trans people be in the military because of unit cohesion. And we're worried that um, this is going to affect the way that the military fights. We, we know that that's not true, but that, you know, various RAND reports and other um, high level government research has been done that, that has pretty much, you know, proven beyond the shadow of a doubt that this is really not going to impact things. Um, including 19 other countries who have done similar, uh, similar policy guidance. And it hasn't, it hasn't, the sky has yet to fall in many of those countries, any of them, as a matter of fact. The most important thing to remember about a policy change like this is that there are real people affected. Lives are going to be turned upside down. You're dealing with a lot of people who have a lot of questions now about their ability to stay in their job. And these, a lot of these people had been encouraged by the introduction of um, DOD 1,328 that they, they were, they had been encouraged so much. In fact, some of them had even said to me, um, you know, I, I was shocked when they announced this guidance and I wasn't sure what it meant for me then. But as time went on, I realized it was becoming safer and safer for me to um, come out in, in my position. And so you're you're just dealing with a lot, a lot of people who may need to start looking for jobs soon. Do they do they get honorable discharges if the military is going to sort of purge them from the roles? Do they get dishonorable discharges? Like, what exactly are we looking at, and what sorts of official policy changes are going to be na- made in order to um, offset this problem? And the way Trump handled this couldn't have been worse. The Pentagon was blindsided by the announcement. There isn't a policy in place to handle what Trump said was now the official position of the U.S. government. And that leads to chaos. What you're going to see with unit cohesion is that people are going to have no idea what this means. And this does raise the specter of what happens in the future if Trump wakes up one day and decides that he wants to do something else with the military. Is this his official means of controlling the military? Um, how does this affect military orders, for instance? Um, are we going to have to expect a, a military operation to be launched by Twitter? There's still confusion about whether a tweet is, constitutes official policy. 
in the eyes of the DOD, this is not official policy. Um, you would have to go through a reversal process. And it's likely, like what you said earlier, that, that James Mattis is probably taken by surprise by this. I don't really know where he goes from here. I don't know if he has to develop uh, a reversal to that policy. Uh, you're, you're, all of these details that led us up to this point have taken years to build, which means that reversing that policy is also going to take years to build. Because it's not just as simple as saying, the policy's gone, poof. Again, that chaos will have an impact on real people's lives. There are transgender people serving in the military today, and they're serving honorably, and they deserve that chance. So the first person I think that came to mind might be the first person that a lot of people would have come to mind is um, Kristen Beck, who's a, a Navy SEAL who transitioned. I don't remember how long ago, but she's been a fantastic advocate for veterans in the military and specifically for um, uniformed veterans. So I had heard her story uh, when she did the CNN special, and I, I was um, really nowhere close to transitioning at that point. But seeing her um, her transition, her process of transition, and actually watching her make things work uh, was very encouraging to me. So although she's a veteran and her role is more advocacy now, it's still she's still the first one I think of because she's she's the person who epitomizes for me um, what it means to serve honorably as a transgender member of the military. I have to end with my favorite story of the week. I'm talking, of course, about Pickle. To remind us a little bit more often about some of the forgotten men, women, and children that we're here to serve and that the president is fighting for, we're going to start the White House briefing every once in a while with a letter or an email that we may receive from some of those individuals. To kick it off with that process, I'd like to read you a letter from nine-year-old Dylan. My name is Dylan Harbin, but everybody calls me Pickle. I'm nine years old and you're my favorite president. I like you so much that I had a birthday about you. My cake was the shape of your hat. And then Dylan goes on to ask a few questions. How old are you? Dylan, President Trump is 71 years old. How big is the White House? The White House is 168 feet long. It's 70 feet tall on the south side and 60 feet four inches tall on the north. And it takes 300 gallons of white paint to cover the exterior of the White House residence. It has 132 rooms and approximately 55,000 square feet. How much money do you have? Dylan, I'm not sure, but I know it's a lot. I don't know why people don't like you. Me either, Dylan. You seem really nice. Can we be friends? I'm happy to say that I directly spoke to the president, Dylan, and he would be more than happy to be your friend. My picture is in here, so if you can, see me and say hello. Dylan, I hope you're watching because the president wanted me to personally tell you hello. Your friend, Dylan. Dylan, thanks for writing to the president, and if you're ever in Washington, D.C., I hope you'll stop by and let us show you around the White House. Now, a lot of people I know think Pickle isn't real, but I believe in you, Pickle. You hear my daughter, she's a year younger than Pickle, read tweets on the podcast all the time. And when she first read Trump's tweets announcing the transgender ban, she said she wanted to smash my phone and then go and smash my wife's phone so that the tweets wouldn't exist anymore. I I wish I had been recording then. But the point is, Kids parrot their parents' beliefs. There are tons of kids across the country, just like Pickle, who believe Trump is the greatest president of all time because their parents tell them that. And do I have a point to make about Pickle? 
No, guys, I just really like saying pickle. Pickle, pickle, pickle. Pickle. That's it for another week with a vinegar-soaked narcissist as our president. I want to thank Emily Crows for coming on the podcast. And thank you so much to everyone who supports me every week on Patreon. And I bet they would love for you to join them. Go to patreon.com slash the Trump scorecard. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the Trump scorecard and sign up. You can also send me an email if you have any thoughts you want to share. That's thetrumpscorecard at gmail.com. Don't forget, you can go to the website for links to all the stories I covered today on the podcast. It's thetrumpscorecard.org. Like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thetrumpscorecard. And I always love to hear from you on Twitter. I'm at Jesse Burney. Wouldn't tell. Thank you. Can you do it one more time, but slower? Wouldn't tell. Thank you. Not quieter, slower. So still loud, but slower. Wouldn't tell. Thank you. The Trump Scorecard is written, hosted, edited, and produced by me, Jesse Burney. Our music is from bensound.com. I'll be back next week, and remember, this is not normal.